We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I am Megan Weiskup with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. So I'm just going to hand the mic over right away to Tana to introduce our guest because we have a full episode and lots of information to share today. Thanks, Julia. I am so excited to talk to you guys today. Spring is in the air and the Midwest is finally beginning to thaw out. And so with that warm weather brings this you know, overwhelming sense of wanting to get back um, out of the house and out into the great out of doors. So I don't know about you guys, but when the weather starts creeping up and things get warm, I immediately think of two things, and that is crappie spawn and turkey season. So um, in Kansas, turkey season starts in April, and you can call me crazy, but I found the sound of I find the sound of a turkey call just absolutely electrifying. It my boyfriend makes fun of me all the time. He'll like play a turkey gobble in another room, and my ears will perk up. I'm like, oh my god, turkeys! So I don't know what it is, but I get crazy about that. So. In the spirit of the upcoming turkey season, we wanted to talk turkeys today, and so we have phenomenal guests joining us, including Kansas's own Laura Mendenhall. Uh, Laura's the president of the Kansas Wildlife Federation. She's going to be joining us just a little bit later today. We also have Nebraska biologist Shelley Steffel with us and Iowa Conservation Officer Andrea Bevington. So Welcome, ladies, and thank you for joining us. We couldn't be happier to have you on today. Um, each of you obviously bring a totally unique perspective to our turkey talk, so it's great that you're here. Um, Laura's going to join us a little bit later, so I'm going to kick it back over to Julia to go ahead and um, introduce our biologist today. Here in our office, when it gets close to turkey season, I kid you not, my coworkers like that's all they do is they talk turkey, and then not not when I mean talk, like they're not talking about turkey hunting. All I hear is turkey calls. I swear they like walk, they get out of their vehicles in the morning, they put the mouthpiece in, and it's like turkey talk the whole like for the next three months. So I too am very excited about this. And <laughs> I think Tana, you probably would enjoy being in our office too, that excitement <laughs> of the call. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd go crazy hearing all those calls. Nebraska is very fortunate to have different regions, uh, different landscapes. And with that comes different subspecies of wild turkeys. And so we even have, we have, hunters that come in from different states excited to seek out and hunt out those subspecies and so Shelly can share that information later on but Shelly is a wildlife biologist with the Game and Parks Commission position primarily works with landowners and other partners such as NWTF, Bird Conservatory of Rockies, PF. She works with the U.S. Forest Service to implement habitat management, conduct surveys, etc. on their lands, as well as other state and federal lands. She also manages and con contracts 
for the Open Fields and Waters program in her district. Uh, she talks with hunters about population, places to hunt, uh, the weather, anything you can imagine. Uh, they discuss not only just turkey, but big game and small game species as well. Uh, she works in the northern panhandle and northern half of Cherry County. So if you're not familiar with Nebraska, Cherry County is our biggest county uh, mile-wise in the state. It's nearly 6,000 square miles. And to per that at perspective, larger than the state of Connecticut. So she doesn't necessarily just um, walk out and have a couple mile drive for her position. It's, I mean, that's it's a, a lot of a lot of miles on the road, a lot of area to cover, a lot of public lands, including a lot of uh, private land. She's also a mother of an amazing nine-year-old and also married to a biologist. So I can imagine your, your supper talk is a lot of hunting and a lot of wildlife. So welcome, Shelly. Thank you very much. Rachel, why don't you introduce our, um, our other guest? Yeah, I have the great honor of of introducing our third guest this morning. Um, we have Andrea Bevington on with us. And so Andrea is going to represent the law enforcement side of things. She is a conservation officer here in the state of Iowa and represents Southwest Iowa. So for those of you that are familiar with Iowa, that's Adams and Taylor County. Um, fun fact, Johnny Carson is actually born um, in Corning, which is in Adams County. So I think that's exciting, but um, I'm going to actually let Andrea introduce herself if she doesn't mind just sharing a little bit about her story, um, where she went to school, that type of stuff, and, and how long she's been with the department. Thanks, Rachel. Um, my, as they said, my name is Andrea Bevington. Uh, I'm a conservation officer. I've been a conservation officer since 1998. <laughs> and I started in Pocahontas and Humboldt counties up in Northwest Iowa. And then in 2001, I transferred down to Pottawatomie County or Council Bluffs area in the western side of the state. And uh, then after that, uh, officer retired. I'm originally from Southwest Iowa and an officer retired in Taylor and for the head Taylor and Adams County. So I transferred down here in 2008. So I've been down here for, geez, it'll be 13 years. I went to school at Iowa State University. I got a double major in environmental studies and fish and wildlife biology a long time ago. <laughs> and then I um, had worked for the wildlife and for fisheries for summer internships, and then got on full time with parks for a couple of years as they used to call them park attendants. And now I believe they're called park managers. And then I got on as an officer two years later. And thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. We love the uh, the perspective of, of a conservation officer and then especially from a female side of things. We've had other officers on with us and, and we appreciate you uh, chunking out a little bit of your day for us. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Tana. Wow, you guys are all just so fascinating. And I it's so powerful that we can have everybody on here to talk from all these different perspectives and have all these wonderful, strong, empowered women. Um, maybe I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but 
I just think it's so cool that you're all here. Um, it's a sunny day. We're in a great mood. Let's kick this thing off. So somebody famous, I believe, once said, it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. So what I'm really curious, just to start this conversation off, is kind of the history of turkeys in the Midwest. When I think of turkeys, I consider them to be fairly abundant. You know, you see them when you're driving, they're out pecking around, maybe strutting a little bit. What have turkey numbers been like in the Midwest historically? Have they always been fairly abundant? Maybe Shelly can even share the story of how the relocation of movements of turkey and how that impacted the growth of our population in Nebraska. That's a cool history story. It is. I guess I can't unfortunately speak for the rest of the um, of the Midwest, but from a Nebraska perspective, turkeys were extirpated in 1915 when we lost the last bird. And we did not start reintroductions until the 50s, the late 50s. Um, and the first birds were actually out here in the Northwest District. Miriam's subspecies of, of turkeys. They exploded then. Oh, you know, they, they had two sites that they introduced one that is north of Fort Robinson State Park, which is a little further west than me, about 30 miles. And the other one was just southwest of Shadron here. They released them in 1959, 28 birds they released. By 1962, they had estimated that there were 3,000 birds then out here, just in the Pine Ridge area alone. So just, um, and they actually were able then to open up the first hunting season. Um, we also reintroduced Rios in the southern southeast portion of the state and then and the easterns too. Numbers throughout the state did very well. They actually did too. Once, they, once we started getting so many birds, they started trapping around here and starting to move more of the Merriam subspecies around the state too. So on occasion, you can find a white-tailed bird maybe over like around Valentine and different easterns also. You can find some easterns. They kind of, they moved well too once they got into got into the state. And I think they definitely, they, they thrive on our Midwestern habitat. Now, mm -hmm. you know, does that, we mentioned some Rios or the Marion breeds. Do we not see those specific breeds more into the Eastern because that's not their natural habitat? I would say probably so. You know, there's certain subspecies of animals rely on certain habitats. Miriam's is more of a Western species. So you're going to find it in Wyoming and, you know, Montana and places like that. Whereas the Rios are more of a Southern species too. So, or subspecies. So yes, but it kind of seems like some of these two can be a little bit more adaptable. And like I said, you know, we find them around Valentine, but our pine timber and our um, ponderosa pine woodlands actually follow the rivers all the way over into that area. So that's kind of where we start transitioning over into more of our oak woodlands. You know, Shelly, it's interesting that you use the word adaptive because that's one of the most fascinating things about turkeys to me is the different subspecies. I mean, you can find them spread out, like you said, all the way from Montana down to, you know, Florida. They've got the Osceola turkeys that are just so interesting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing the way that they are so adaptive and that they can thrive in all of these different habitats between the different subspecies. And, uh, you know, we think of them as this big brown bird and kind of boring and kind of stupid, but um, it's amazing the things they've adapted to, and they're absolutely beautiful birds. The physical differences in them are stunning in, uh, between regions. It's, it's so cool. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody does say they're a stupid bird, but I, until you go out and hunt one, don't call it stupid. 
stupid. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Oh my gosh. <laughs> they are wily. They are very impressive birds. To that point, Shelly, um, I've heard this story about turkeys flying. Um, every time I see a turkey, they're on the ground. And I've been told that it sounds like this, you know, big steam train coming through when they are, when they're flying. Can you, do they fly for those of us that are, that are doubters maybe? I mean, where do they roost at night and nest? Um, they do fly. Now they are not a distance flyer, say like a prairie grouse. You know, you kick up a sharp-tailed grouse and it flies two miles. A turkey is definitely not going to do that. They are more of a short-term flyer. Since they roost in trees, you know, we, we find them in, especially in my area out here in the West, we find them roosting in the large cottonwoods um, and the ponderosa pine. And so they, they have to fly to get up there. They aren't going to climb a tree. A lot of times what they do too, though, is they'll find a hill next to one or a tree next to a hill. And so they can kind of get a kick off of that hill and get up to the tops of the trees that way. So um, it's very Buzz Lightyear. It reminds me of that scene where he like makes the ramp and he it's falling with style. It really reminds it, me of that. And <laughs> getting a head start down a hill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's fun to watch when they go to roost. They're they're impressive and it's noisy and you know, you know you have oh, yeah. roost. They are very noisy. And then they're noisy when they come falling down too. just, I mean, which is really cool because you're sitting in your blind and you know when they're starting to come out of that tree, if you're close, because you're just, and I mean, (laughs) you're telling your predators you're around, but I mean, that's why they're in the tree. So, and then I've also seen them literally climb just branch by branch by branch to get to the top of the tree and so it's just it's cool it's fun to watch so you know i'm familiar with the turkey subspecies that's eastern nebraska and to me it's pretty obvious uh, most of the time if it is a male or female uh, toms and jake's right jake's yes jake's and bearded hens and bearded hens so maybe we let's talk about uh what the difference in some of those giveaways of how we know difference how do we know the difference between a male and a female and then especially if it's a bearded female you know what could give that away and why is that allowed to hunt even in nebraska and iowa and kansas i don't know if that's the same with you too if you could um, hunt your bearded um, hens too. From a, a sex perspective, males for the most part in most birds always tend to be the prettier of the sexes. The females need to hide. So our female turkeys are going to be a little bit more of a mottled color. They're not going to maybe necessarily be as bright or as iridescent as the males are. Um, one of the biggest things that everybody always thinks about though is the head and the fact that the males, especially during mating season, they get that really bright red head, bright blues and everything. It's just very visible where the females tend to have a fuzzier head and they're more of a bluish gray color. Um, it, um, as far as the beards go, you know, the males also have, if you look at their legs, they've got the spurs on the back of their legs that they use for fighting. Um, and the beards are just a modified um, feathers that are coming off the center of the chest, the breast. Um, and um, the older they get, the longer they are. And more, it's again, just another way to attract a lady and, and show how fabulous he really is. <laughs> um, 
as far as the bearded hen, um, it just tends to be more of a genetic thing. It's found throughout birds throughout the uh, throughout the country, so it's not an uncommon thing. I'd say it's likely more of a mature female that's going to have those, you know, some of the older birds. And Andrea, do you have the answer of why we can hunt the bearded hens? Well, I think um, also part of it is that jakes are smaller. They're the immature males and they're smaller. So I think they can be comparable to hens. And when you have, when you're looking at a distance, if you're looking at a hen, you know, or a jake, a, a bird, a turkey that has a beard, um, then they make it so you're able to shoot a bearded uh, turkey. So it's not just necessarily a tom. And in the, uh, we have a fall season in Iowa. I don't know if Nebraska does too. And um, you can shoot a hen uh, in the fall. But yeah, I think, and I don't know if Shelly had said that, it was at like 10 to 20% of hens may have beards. And uh, so it's not, like she said, it's not uncommon, but I think that that's part of the reasoning of allowing to be a bearded turkey. Yeah, and I liken that to like with our big game permits, your antlered versus antlerless tags, because just like female deer can sometimes grow antlers, um, sometimes it can be hard to tell by those very obvious distinctive traits like a beard and a turkey. Um, there can be some mix up there so that in a lot of ways is just our, um, our law enforcement protecting everybody that's out there hunting and viewing these birds and making sure that um, if there is a trouble with ID, you know, the law's on your side and they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Perfect. And kind of continuing on getting into more of their, their habits and, and what the turkeys do. And I couldn't agree with you, Shelly, when you mentioned about you know, don't call these birds stupid until you have the opportunity to hunt because they, they definitely can uh, throw you for some loops. But some things that we could start looking at to maybe help us have a more successful hunt is to kind of dive into what these turkeys typically eat. So where we might find them once they, they get out of the roost in the morning um, and where they're going to, to get some food. So can you go over a little bit about what they typically eat? Sure. And again, it's going to vary where they're located, you know, even within a state or between states. Um, in the eastern half of, of Nebraska, and, um, you know, they're looking at more mast, they're looking acorn production, um, juniper shoots, roots, small animals, insects, they eat a little bit of everything. Some research for something else I did with another um, um, gentleman. One of the big things was poison ivy berries. I love poison ivy. Out here, they're also known to use the pine timber. And so they'll, use, they'll eat pine nuts in addition to other um, small berries, snow berries, grass seeds, a little bit of everything. When you get into Kansas, you know, you're still going to kind of pulling down into that eastern pine woodlands and everything like that. They're going to be probably focusing a lot more on that on that, those same things within those woodlands and then the adjacent grassland. Iowa too, I can't, I can't kick Iowa out of there either because we still have some of that oak woodland, but then they're also going to look at other shoots and, and leaf buds and things like that from other species of trees. Maybe your ash, um, American elm, certain species like that. So they have a very, very diet. When we're scouting for turkeys in the spring, we uh, head out to the pasture grounds and cows have been out there. And I always know there's an abundance of turkeys in there because the cow patties, the dried up cow patties had been flipped over. I mean, that is like a 
buffet for the turkeys gourmet dinner right there the flipped over cow patties absolutely you get your insects you get your seeds you get a little bit of everything when it comes to cow poop cow poop on the menu well hey while we have a second we have laura mendenhall joining us hey laura welcome hey thanks for having me yeah thanks for jumping on so for those of you who don't know laura she is a kansas treasure uh, Laura is president of the Kansas Wildlife Federation, and she's jumping on today. She's an incredible person, a champion for women in the outdoors, a champion for diversity in the outdoors, really. And like I said, she um, runs the Kansas Wildlife Federation and does an absolutely incredible job at that. If you've had the chance to tune into some of their more recent webinars and guest speakers, that group is just doing phenomenal things. So be sure to follow them on uh, social media and check out their website. Laura can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, Laura has also been a wonderful partner with us with the Kansas Wildlife Federation on some of our Spanish translation efforts. So um, the Kansas Wildlife Federation was really instrumental in getting some of our major documents translated and kind of continuing that push for um, better diversity work in Kansas. So um, Laura, do you wanna give us a quick elevator pitch about you and your life before we jump back into Turkey Talk? Sure. So as Tana mentioned, I am currently leading the Kansas Wildlife Federation, uh, born and raised in Kansas. I've been hunting for about seven years. The first thing that I harvested on my own was abalone in California, so in the ocean. Um, and then when I moved back to Kansas, the, the first thing I harvested was a turkey. And uh, fun fact, my husband and I, uh, for our wedding a few years ago, we fed everybody with meat that we harvested and it was all turkeys. That was back when you could have two tags a person. Um, so we were able, able to make turkey chili for everybody. And we have a two-year-old daughter and she is actively working on her turkey box call skills. <laughs> um, so we hope to take her out, probably not this year, but eventually. Um, but yeah, as Tana mentioned, I'm just really excited about Kansas and conservation. And I'm really happy to be on this podcast today. So thanks. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. And you're just in time because we're uh, we're kind of just diving right into some turkey behavior. We've talked about how they fly and kind of liken them to Buzz Lightyear's falling with style. Um, talked about the difference between male and female birds, and then we were just getting into what they eat. So um, I think what's coming next is there's some weird turkey terminology. So I want to talk about that um, because the first time I heard about these strange body parts on these birds was just a couple years ago. And so I've heard of this weird thing called a snood. And then I've also heard of a waddle. And when I think of waddle, I think of like me after I eat too much turkey on Thanksgiving, like waddling back to the couch. But this is something completely different. So snood and a waddle, what are we talking about? So the snood is a funny little thing, I think. It's um, if anybody ever looks at a bird, it's the piece that hang of uh, flesh that hangs off the top of the beak. Um, and again, we were talking about how males are so pretty to attract the ladies. Seems to be that the gentleman with the larger snood gets more ladies. So those jakes, they still have those little ones that are just kind of sticking straight out. They look almost like little mo tiny mohawks, but the older the males get, they have longer snoods that'll hang down along the sides of their face. Um, they do change size depending on, um, um, if they get, become more alert or becoming alarmed, they'll actually shrink. Um, so that's a good thing to think about when you're hunting too. So if you start watching a bird and, and all of a sudden his, for some reason, you're just watching his snood, 
it starts getting smaller. He's something's tricked him or tripped him off. They also have shown um, that during fights, during fights between the toms, that the males with the larger snoods also become are more deferred to. So the uh, the guys with the smaller snoods will back down a little bit more if they are competing against a basically what could would be, I guess, considered an all around bigger, better male. All right. You heard it here first, gentlemen, the bigger your snood, the more lucky you're going to get out there. Thanks for tuning in to She Goes Outdoors. So what about a waddle? And like I said, this is not like a waddle, like a penguin does, or like we do after a big meal. Uh, what is a waddle in reference to a turkey, Shelley? Um, It's going to be what it, I hate to say it. I don't know that you guys want to use this, but they also call a waddle in an older lady. <laughs> it could be that flesh that hangs out down underneath your chin and again it's still going to be something more as, as an attractant the um it it turns the brighter red during mating season too you know if you see once you see them all strutting and their heads tucked in their snoods hanging down their waddles like hanging out from underneath their beaks it's blue and red and just gorgeous it just is all about a track. There's there's not much else that it's going to be used for. A snood and a waddle. Talk about sex appeal. <laughs> <It's overly> sexy. <laughs> to to change the uh, the direction of this conversation. So, what are predators to turkeys? Um, if they sound like these, uh, I mean, their flying is so loud. They're obviously doesn't sound like they're scared of much. So, what is out there uh, that they should be worried about in beyond humans in my area in particular um you know we've got our our larger cats we've got lions mountain lions we've got the bobcats um potentially some coyotes as the you know adult birds or juvenile birds are going to be more of those critters like that um but then is from um an egg or a nest predation we're looking at snakes um skunks raccoons all different kinds of animals like that so it's it depends on, I guess, what life cycle you're, or portion of the life cycle you're in as to what might eat you. You know, and the population of the turkeys is growing so quickly in Nebraska from, you know, what we visually see, especially in eastern Nebraska, that there really is not a whole lot of predators that bother them. Is that correct? Or did they just successfully, or able to successfully move on with life from the populations that I see? I think as far as it goes, the the numbers as far is predators go is fluctuating too. So once those numbers go down um, in a cycle, then turkey numbers pop up most definitely. Um, Everything's cyclic. I'm, you know, with um, as far as as being able to pull off successful nests and everything like that. And it's not from a a nest perspective too. It's been pretty dry the last several years for us Um, in portions of the state, let me say that (laughs) as far as when uh, nesting season comes around. So, you know, that's helped too in being able to pull off some good nests or being able to re-nest. Shelly, is there any other information that you would want to share as far as the biology, behaviors, before we start getting into the conversation of hunting these birds? Um, the, um, the only other thing that I forgot to mention was that um, they, as far as diet goes, and that's something that can get them into trouble too, is that they do focus on certain crop grounds. Um, and especially in the wintertime when they're foraging, um, you know, they look at hay and uh, hay bales and things like that. They can, they can 
do really well on hay. hay. Um, they enjoy alfalfa and they'll go through and dig up tubers and everything like that too. So we, and that's maybe one of the reasons why they're so successful too, is that they're not just relying on the, the native woodland and grassland components, but they're able to adapt over to the, um, a lot of crop ground. Awesome. Well, thank you, Shelly and Laura and Andrea for giving us some great tips and, and stuff regarding the tricky biology and kind of their mannerisms and all things that we'll definitely want to keep in mind as we start getting into the, the hunting part of getting out there and, and seeking out those wily critters. And I don't know about you, Rachel, but I see a new challenge this year for us in the spring, and, and that's to actually get a turkey close enough so that we can watch that snood in action. So that's definitely what we're going to try this year. Um, Rachel and I are excellent at calling in white-tailed deer coyotes um just phenomenal every other critter but the turkey that we want to actually have come in so that's going to be our goal for this year is to, to actually see that snood in action definitely something that i learned more about today <laughs> so let's dive into to what we actually use to hunt turkeys and and definitely want to kind of punt this one over to to andrea and definitely uh Lori and shelly jump in as well but what type of firearm and or bow, or can you use bows to hunt turkeys? I guess that would be a great question for someone um, getting started uh, or just firearms. Uh, kind of talk about the different implements that you can use to hunt those turkeys. And then I know there's also when you start looking at ammunition and, and types of, of arrow tips, are there some that's specially designed for hunting turkeys? So in Iowa, you can use uh, shotguns you can use muzzle-loading shotguns, or you can use archery equipment. And for the bows, you can use the long bows, compounds, recurves, um, but you have to be able to use um, shooting broadheads for those bows. Um, you can use a crossbow if you have a permit. Um, otherwise, crossbows are not uh, permitted for everybody else. You can use blunt head arrows, and I think the minimum diameter is 9 16th of an inch. Um, arrows must be at least 18 inches long. So that's what you can use for archery equipment. For guns, um, like I said, muzzle-loading shotguns or shotguns, uh, the range is from 20 gauge, 16, 12, and 10 gauge shotguns. Um, and the shot sizes are from number four to number eight. So you cannot be in Iowa, you cannot be in possession of any shot size other than that. And it can be uh, lead or it can be a non-toxic shot, depending on if you're on a certain area that you can only use non-toxic shot. You know, and it, it may be good that our listeners check into their own state regulations, because as we have even found out during deer season, when we had that discussion, that all the states are different. For example, you know, in Nebraska, we can uh, hunt turkeys with crossbows, and it's during our archery season. So you don't have to have a separate permit for that crossbow you just have to be have the archery the tag during archery season if that makes sense um so yeah i would definitely check into all your different states regulations we can also use hand-thrown spears that's right see We're how crazy to... you want to get out there <laughs> 
Wow. I would say one thing else to add, Julia, um, above that too, depending on what state you're hunting, if you are hunting archery, some states do require bow hunter education if you're going to be using um, archery related equipment. So besides hunter education, which is pretty standard in all 50 states, you may want to check, especially if you're traveling um, to another state, if they also do require uh, bow hunter education, if you're going to be using those archery implements. Well, moving right along, along that same vein of hunting, I think, Laura, this is a question for you if you're able to feed an entire wedding with all of your wonderful turkey hunting abilities. Um, so Laura, when you're out hunting in the field, do you typically use decoys for turkeys? Yes. My husband and I share a decoy and I have him to thank. He found a roadkill hen and he does his own taxidermy. So he stuffed it and that's kind of been our decoy. Um, although you don't have to use a decoy. If you're a good enough caller and can get close enough, um, you don't, you don't need a decoy. And actually that's going to be his challenge this year is trying to hunt without a decoy, but I'll probably still, um, keep going with the decoy. Cause that I've been successful that way. So it is that like in uh, waterfowl hunting, you typically have a really large decoy spread. So are you putting out a ton of turkey decoys or will just one do the trick? Just one. Um, and she's a hen and because she's taxidermied, she has a real feather. So, which is nice. Cause when the wind blows, like her feathers kind of move and she looks like she's alive. So you really just need that. I'm aware of, you just need one. I don't know if others have different experiences with using multiples or, or what. Right. So then of course there's two ways of thinking about it, right? You can put a hen out and try to call a bird in, or if you do have a Jake or a Tom decoy, typically a Jake, um, that a Tom turkey might feel he can come in and beat up and harass a little bit. I've heard that that works well for people too. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I hunt on public land and I don't know if this is just me being paranoid, but it kind of sketches me out the idea of putting a Jake or a Tom in front of my little setup, um, if there's, in case there's another hunter, but I don't, maybe that's just me being extra cautious. No, that's good. And that's kind of skipping ahead a little bit in the conversation, but we were going to talk about fanning. And so fanning is basically where people will take a preserved turkey fan, either real or fake, um, and they will kind of use it to sneak up on birds. And it's kind of the same idea. Um, and Andrea, maybe you can chime in here a little bit. Um, my understanding is that some of the biggest cause of incidents in turkey hunting is not identifying your target and what lies beyond it. So seeing somebody crawling through the grass with a turkey fan and not identifying to make sure it is actually a bird and not a hunter. Um, I know in Kansas, we've had some incidents where people have gotten shot because they were trying to do that fanning technique or because people were shooting at a decoy, like Laura mentioned, and they didn't realize there was a person behind them. So can you talk about that from a legal side and kind of what your perspective is on that? And then, um, you know, is blaze orange required for turkey hunting? And even if not, would that be a good thing that you might recommend hunters use if they're hunting public land? So, yeah, that's a, uh, so blaze orange, at least for Iowa, is not required. Um, it's not a bad idea. We've had, I've had people ask about it, wearing blaze orange into their blind, if they're sitting at a blind, in a blind. Um, I definitely, if you're, especially if you're on public property and where you may be going in on the West side of a public area, and there may be three or four other guys that came in on the East and the North side, and you have no idea if somebody else is in there. 
And we always tell people to scout the area, make sure before you go in there to see if there's other vehicles there. Um, turkey fanning has become really popular probably in the last, I suppose, five to 10 years. Um, there are states that it makes stalking a turkey illegal. Um, in Iowa, it is not illegal to do that. So it is legal um, to be fanning. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> we see, especially in forested and timbered areas where if guys are going to be hunting turkeys, that when we have hunting incidents, guys will shoot at movement. They're not even, they're not even making sure necessarily I, I, there's been hunting accidents where they shoot at a movement, not even if there's necessarily a bird there. And so creeping on the ground, low to the ground with a turkey fan, you know, with a turkey fan, it, and, you know, I can't, I cannot recommend it. There's been several people that talk about doing it if they're on private property, if it's a big open space where you know there's nobody else there, whether it's deer or turkey, they're not making sure what their target is, let alone what's beyond it. And that ends up being a problem. Now you're, you're spot on, Andrea, and that's definitely when it comes to turkey, it's, you know, the victim being mistaken for game. And, and most of the time, like you mentioned, people are just taking a shot at that that movement or just a brief uh, shot of the color. Um, so, you know, where blaze orange isn't required, definitely would recommend it while you're walking in and out of the field. And especially like Andrea mentioned, if you're hunting in a blind, because you're, you're being concealed anyway, um, visibility is so key with being out in the woods. And um, you also want to avoid those patriotic colors. So the, the blues, the reds, the whites, because, you know, that's the, the color of the male's head, which is what um, a hunter would be aiming for. So don't wear any of those colors or a buff or a sweatshirt underneath that may be presenting those. And that not, doesn't go just for hunters. Um, a lot of our listeners and, and definitely with, with COVID and play this past year, you know, more folks have rediscovered our outdoors and, and definitely after the winter and the, the snow melt and people are itching to get back outside. So, you know, the woods are full of a lot of folks, not just people out there turkey hunting. So whether they're out there bird watching, just going for hikes or even mushroom hunting, which that's definitely a topic we'll be talking about here shortly. And a lot of times with that, when you're stalking, especially at the, you know, the end of our, we have four seasons in the spring and during four seasons, there's a lot more leafing out of the vegetation. And if you're sitting low to the ground and with the grass and everything else, it's sure hard to tell, you know, what you are. So I, I cannot recommend it. I know that there are people that do it. Yeah. And we bring this up guys, not to, not to scare you at all or discourage you from going out, but just to remind you that as a hunter, you have a big responsibility to make sure that you are properly identifying your target. You're being as safe as possible. And you're remembering that a hunter is never wrong for not taking a shot. So if there is ever anything in the field that you see that you're unsure of for whatever reason, you know, you're, you're never wrong for not taking a shot. So we do want to remind our listeners of that. And of course, Megan brought it up too, that you do have a responsibility just being outdoors and sharing these wonderful spaces that we have access to. Um, that comes with the responsibility to be courteous to others out, um, being respectful of others using the area, 
all that is so important. And it's not to scare you. It's just to make everybody aware and, and have a good time out there. And as far as legal perspective goes, you know, Andrea really nailed it home in that just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I guess it's a really good example of that. So if you think that blaze orange is a good thing for you to wear, just because it's not required legally doesn't mean that you should ever hesitate from doing that. It's really about keeping you safe, especially if you're on public land. And then of course, you know, private land poachers are out there. So even if you do have access to that private land, you just never know who else might be out there. Or if there's a miscommunication with the landowner and two people got permission, you just never know. So thank you ladies for all speaking to that a little bit. Laura kind of mentioned that her daughter is learning the box call. Julia had mentioned that the office all has mouth calls. I've heard of other calls. So I just wanted to get back. It sounds like there's a ton of calls out there. Um, is there an advantage to one or the other or uh, are there personal preferences? Just I would say, so in my experience, box calls and slate calls are maybe the easiest to learn, um, especially box calls. And the mouth call has the advantage, and I learned this last year, if you're not hunting in a blind and you've got turkeys coming in on you, you don't want to move a muscle. You want to just focus on getting your gun shouldered and not using a call. So having that diaphragm call in your mouth, you can do it hands-free, but they are a lot harder to learn. And I think they're kind of gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. They tickle. I can't use a mouth call. (laughs) I can't either. This reverberation just kills me. Check out Nebraska BOW, our Facebook page. And we're going to spend an hour, if not longer, on using calls. Like things that you have to see it, do it yourself. It's just, and practice, practice, practice. And so at the beginning of this episode, when we were talking about our coworkers or our spouses or you know, people around, or even Tana practicing the turkeys calls. It's because it's a thing that we're getting ready for. And it's something that just doesn't come overnight to you. And everybody has their preferences, whether it's a mouth, um, a mouth call, slate, box call. Some people are even crazy and they can even do it without, (laughs) they can make those sounds without a a device. Now you're, you're spot on Julia and you totally stole my line, how I was going to start out this next kind of segment as we, we kind of switch gears and get into kind of the, the, pre-planning or what you should be doing and focusing on before you go out there on the hunt and definitely calling is one of those things you want to practice, practice, practice. Um, Our biologist in Iowa, um, he recommends, especially if you want to try out that gross mouth call, you know, do it while you're driving in the car. That way, hey, nobody else can hear you. It's something to do on those longer drives and and there's some definitely good uh, YouTube videos, CD stuff out there from the different call manufacturers that you can listen along with and and start learning all those different call types. The other two big pre-planning things is distance estimation. So um, when you're hunting from a blind or tree, it's it's definitely important to, to kind of figure out what your effective distances are. Um, you're shooting at a pretty small target there as you're wanting to target the, the head or the upper part of the body. That way you're not destroying any of the meat. And then also their feathers are so tough. Um, the, the head is really in the, the throat neck area is where you can get the most penetration to have a, a quick, clean, ethical kill. So you're really focusing on a small target. So you want to know, um, I recommend, you know, especially if you can get out to those places ahead of time that you can, you know, take a look at, you know, a tree and 
and, and use a rangefinder and kind of figure out where those distances are at. So you have kind of a mental picture in your mind. So when that turkey comes in, you know where you're going to be the most effective. So you can take that good, clean, ethical shot. Um, and then uh, making sure that you get out there and shoot that firearm before you go. Um, so critical. All three states have plenty of public ranges on them. Um, you can go out to the agency's websites in the respective states to find out those locations. Another great tool is the where to shoot on the National Shooting Sports Foundation page. They, they show where ranges are across the United States. So especially if you're traveling and pull out that gun before you go, it's it's just a great to get out to a range. Um, Birchwood Casey, um, not the only manufacturer out there, but produces a great turkey target that's reactive. So you can see visually where you're hitting that target and the and the different colors pop up when you're in that effective zone. So definitely recommend using one of those. And then you also want to use that ammunition that you're going to be hunting with. You want to practice with what you're going to hunt with so that you know how it's going to perform. So you really your two goals in pattern testing is, you know, you're fine tuning your tricky's gun point of impact and then you're testing its pattern because all ammunition is going to pattern just a little bit differently in everybody's gun. So get out there, you know, you definitely want to take a good two to three shots um, again, like Julia mentioned, all three states do some great jobs and their partners with putting on some of these clinics and workshops ahead of time. Uh, we'll be having a virtual series as well. So um, get out there, do your research, get out to a range, especially if you're going to a man range. Most of those staff will be more than willing to help you set up a pattern testing target and walk you through the process because you, you definitely want to make sure that you can have those effective shots and ethical shots when you get out there. Megan, I, you know, you just brought on that all the, our states have educational programming. We'll go ahead and post post on our She Goes Outdoors Facebook page, all of the offerings, educational programs, links that will be available through our states moving forward. So whether it's virtually or in person. So along that same category of preparation in terms of what you need to do before you go out to hunt, um, an important aspect of that to have a good turkey hunt is of course scouting. So I'm really curious to see what you all ladies think is the most successful, both from a hunter's perspective and a legal perspective, um, as well as a biologist's perspective. You know, we talked about birds roosting in like big cottonwood trees, for example. Um, so when I typically scout for turkeys, I'm usually driving around my family's property and just looking in trees, basically. So out there early morning with a pair of binoculars, looking for those big, giant, robust turkeys sitting in the trees in the morning, um, trying to find those roost sites. And that way I know that I can come back the next day and um, be huntable birds. So what do you all recommend for turkey scouting? I would say, so this has never failed me. When I pull up to a spot pre-dawn and you really do have to get there when it's dark, it's usually a piece of public ground that I already kind of know. I've studied it via satellite. I've been out on it, not in turkey season. So I kind of know the areas and I have an idea of where I think they might roost. Um, I'll do a, a barred owl call and you can do like a crow call or just slam your car door and get them to shot gobble. And then, so when you hear that gobble, then go to that spot and set up below that tree or near that tree before they can see you. It's got to be way before dawn, um, but that has never failed. I've always done a barred call or a barred owl call and I've always ended up hearing at least one Tom. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've always been so careful about slamming my car door, but I get that the shock of like, Oh, what was that? When it's still dark enough that they can't see you that that makes a lot of sense. 
I will be headed out to the typical spot that we put the blind up and I'll start hearing them kind of gobble or even sometimes when you start hearing them come out of the trees and I'm like, oh, I'm a little too late. I probably should have set the alarm <laughs> a lot earlier. Yeah, that's always the case. You're like trudging out there with your decoys and you're crawling on the ground. It. They're not going to see me. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of folks too that put birds to bed. So, you know, we, we wander around and we'll, we'll find them out there and maybe try and see if there's a potential roost tree that's nearby in some of those um, draws and everything like that. And hang back and kind of see how they're moving, find a place to hide. We find a place to hide um, and see where they're moving to and see if we're actually accurate or if not, then once it starts getting dusk and they're getting up into those trees, then just start walking some of those areas and looking just to just to kind of see where maybe if we can find where they are and then come back out in the morning. Yeah, and well, and scouting for turkeys is so great because there's so much going on in the springtime. It's a great time if you're out birding anyway um, to be getting out there early. See if you can find those birds while you're out looking for, you know, songbirds and other things. Um, if you're out hunting morel mushrooms, try going a little bit earlier, or if it's evening time, start looking toward those trees where birds might be going back to roost. Um, of course, if you are on public land, do be careful because like, for example, if it's a walk-in hunting area in Kansas, you do need to be actively hunting to access that land. So you shouldn't be out there um, birding or doing things if you're not actively hunting. Want somebody be able to provide us some more information, perhaps on using like the Onyx app, public access maps, hard copies of them. What what additional information can you share with us on that? Yeah, Onyx is a really great tool. You can also just go on Google Earth or Google Maps prior to your visit and just get to know the the lay of the land. Um, I'm lucky because the public land that I hunt on, I also hunt deer on. So I end up spending a lot of time out there and I get to know the boundaries and I know where the private land is that I shouldn't be crossing over into. Um, so really just spending time out on the piece of property is, is very helpful for me. Shelly, tell us more about your position and how you work with landowners in setting up habitats for conservation efforts and, you know, even hunting access. Basically what we do is we talk, we go out and meet with landowners who are interested in doing any kind of habitat on their work. Um, most of the time I get in talking to folks who are interested in doing something for turkeys or for deer or for anything like that. But what we look at is what's going on on the landscape and how it can improve the habitat for those species as well as for all the, the other things that you don't think about. Um, a lot of the non-game species. What are we going to do for turkeys that will benefit bluebirds or anything like that? Or especially out here, you know, in the Pine Ridge, is it going to help the olive back pocket mouse? From a habitat perspective, we just, we look at what's going on, what they're already doing out, and maybe some ways that we can help modify that. A shift in, in different management practices that will still benefit from a livestock or a farming perspective, but will still provide some cover or some improved cover and necessary habitat for all those wildlife. We help with grazing systems. We help with pine forest or woodland management and thinnings and prairie restorations. We do a lot of different stuff. Our open fields and waters program, our hunting access program, it started out actually as only opening lands that were under the conservation reserve has evolved over the last 10, 15 years into opening up 
other lands as well as water bodies, streams, rivers, everything like that for fishing access or even potentially waterfowl hunting. So we meet with folks, we see what they have going on out there and, and then um, they're receiving an annual payment for allowing people for walk-in access. And with our program, it is walk-in access only. On some of the larger parcels, we do maybe you know use trails and, and find parking lots or construct parking areas so people don't have to walk in five miles in order to try and shoot a turkey. It's been pretty successful around out here in the western half of the state as well as in the eastern half where people numbers are definitely a lot uh, a lot larger over in the eastern half of the state. Yeah, there's a lot of both public and private lands that is available for turkeys. I think just some of it is maybe not quite the pressure for the landowner to hunt their own land for turkeys as it is for deer, if that makes sense. So they may be yes. opening more land for you to go turkey hunting. And perhaps maybe the same is for Iowa, Kansas too, where there's a lot more accessibility, I think, to to land to open up for the avail. But it just matter of pulling out that public access guide, getting on our agency websites, finding where those spots are at. Uh, maybe it is an Onyx, even if it's Google Earth, like uh, Laura has mentioned. There's it, it just, but it just takes a little pre-scouting ahead of time, where if you're not comfortable or using those public maps, you know, contact your local conservation officer because many times they know where their turkeys are at and may be able to introduce you to a landowner that is in that area that um, has a population of turkeys that or even your your game and parks offices, your local biologists that are in the area. Uh, just ask around and I bet they can assist you and finding some areas or guidance of. Absolutely. You know, in, we talked about in the wintertime too, you know, when we have a little bit more concentration in on farmsteads and hay bales and things like that, where they're having some problems. If you call the local office or like you said, the local biologists too, we, we're in pretty close contact with those folks for depredation issues and things like that. we can get you in touch with those folks. We've, we've been jumping around a lot, which there's so much turkey. I mean, we could probably spend a long time, several episodes on turkeys. And I think we're just touching on it on this episode, which is great because, you know, I see in the future, we're going to talk more turkeys. I want to ask Andrea a question about what are some of the common turkey hunting legal mistakes? What are some mistakes that you see out there that people may have harvested a turkey illegally? What are some things that you see? Baiting. In Iowa, you cannot bait uh, turkeys. And a lot of people, they will bring a bucket of corn into the middle of the timber or seeds. Um, they cannot be baiting uh, turkeys to lure them in to hunt those. That's deer, turkey, and waterfowl are the big ones for Iowa for not being able to bait. So we do see that trespass. A lot of times, you know, with hunting, it has to do with ethics. You're by yourself and I'm sitting on the other side of the fence and boy, there's a nice tom on the other side of <laughs> on the other side of the fence that I don't have permission to hunt on. And so we have guys that are, you know, that they give in to temptation to shoot across that fence when they don't have permission 
to be hunting that property. Um, I've had them when I was over in Pottawatomie County, guys were shooting them out of vehicles. In the Lus Hills, they're using motor vehicles because the turkey would, and they're, one nice thing, I guess, is there's a lot more people. So a lot more people will see the violations, but, you know, guys drive by, shoot turkeys out of the window of their vehicles. For me, a lot of the common issues that I deal with is for our tagging system. Everybody, they have to have a turkey license. If you're out turkey hunting, you have to have a license, a turkey license and a tag. And our tag is separated into two parts. So once I kill a turkey within 15 minutes or before finding that turkey or before moving it, I've got to notch the date on it and I have to tag the leg. And then uh, before midnight of the following night or before I process it or before it leaves the state, I have to call in the harvest. We've had to do this now for 15 years to report <laughs> the harvest, and we still have people that are not doing it. And so we have a lot of, and once they report the harvest, they got to call in the top tag and all the directions are on the tag, on the license. All you, you just have to read it and you call it in, put the confirmation number and put that tag on the leg also. This helps our biologists so we don't have check-in stations in Iowa. So that's a way for us to help tell what the turkey populations, the deer populations are doing. I've told guys, especially during deer season, we've got guys that aren't tagging their deer. It's a, it's a fine. They get a citation if they are not calling in the harvest. If we have thousand antlerless deers tag sold or this many turkey tags sold and nobody's calling them in, then they're the, one of the things that biologists use is the reporting system. And so if they're not seeing any of them being harvested, then they're thinking, well, there's not the numbers. And so that affects how many tags are going to be issued in the area. Because in Southwest Iowa, the numbers have gone down west of, west of my area, but our numbers are starting to creep back up. And that is one of the tall, I mean, that's one of the things that the guys use. So with turkey hunting, I will tell you that you have to have your turkey license. You have to, you cannot carry somebody else's license. That's the other thing. Do not carry, don't, do not be in possession of somebody else's license and tag. That's not legal in Iowa to do so. Andrea, do you have to have a paper copy in Iowa or is your phone a mobile app work too or do you, so do you have a hard we copy do, we do have a mobile app but for the actual tag you have to have the tag in your possession yep. okay you, you cannot it'll show on your phone I've had we've run into that too because we just started this a few years ago and I know Missouri's been doing it a lot longer than we have and guys showed me their phone with it it'll say you know season three, I'm like, okay, where's your tag? And then, <laughs> so they don't It'd be hard to it. punch out those holes on the yeah, phone, right? Um, <laughs> I, and that's usually the next question. Well, how are you going to tag your turkey if you get one? And then it's the deer in the headlight. Look. <laughs> and it's like, you need to have your tag, you need to have your tag and license with you. Those, those apps are great for your hunting license, for your fishing license, because you don't, um, you were able to just show that, but for the deer and turkey tags, you got to have them with physically have them. That's a good question. And, you know, Nebraska, if 
we have to have a habitat stamp too, unless you're a landowner hunting on your own land. Is that the same both in Iowa and Kansas too, needing that habitat? Iowa, you need to have a habitat fee if you're 16 years of age to 64. So once you turn 65, you do not need to have it. If you're under 16, you don't. You do not need to have a hunting license if you're under 16 um, years of age and you're with a licensed adult. Yep. And Laura, what about Kansas for the permits that uh, you need for your state? I usually just revisit all that right before, like the week before I'm going to go out on a hunt and just have the regs with me. That's so I- that's spot on. I mean, I get it. There, There's a lot of regulations sometimes to to consider and it never hurts to it never hurts to double check all specifics make sure you have the correct permit Uh, you know your your state may require different permits for depending on the area that you're in and then after the bird is harvested know those specific details of what do I need to do next to legally immediately after the harvest and to get this bird home? You know, our agencies are not there because of a matter of control. Again, it's conservation efforts, making sure everybody's ethically and legally doing things correctly. And to always keep in mind that it is those dollars from permits that you purchase, the funding from those habitats that is going back to conservation efforts. So the conversation that Shelly has been talking about what she does for her job in assisting landowners and insisting the public lands and the habitat improvement, it is those dollars, it's those funds from these permits that we talk about that support that. Um, it's the hunters that are supporting the lands for for all wildlife. So in Shelly, in Nebraska, then uh, remind us what we need here in Nebraska for the turkey hunting. Well, again, we're going to need, residents are going to need, if you're over 16 or older, you're going to need your license as well as your habitat stamp. Uh, for a landowner you're going to need your license, but you don't need the habitat. We do also, something that we started a handful of years ago, too, our youth turkey permits. Yes, my son had that and love it. Fantastic. They're $8 for kids hunting or 15 years and under for to be able to go out and try to hunt a turkey. Non-resident kids are welcome to come, too. So if we have folks who are deciding to come into the state and, and want to bring the kids, they can also get those $8 youth tags. The difference is that being non-resident, they are going to have to have the habit. Turkey hunting is a great first time sometimes to go out for with kids. You can hide them. We go back to those colors again in the movement. We can hide them in the blind with us. They can get dressed up in their camel and all black. They can eat snacks all day. They can entertain themselves. And yes, keep that in mind. It's a great uh, first hunt for youth. Absolutely. We have been taking our son with us hunting for quite a few years now and we're getting him into the process of, of trying to get his own bird. You know, his first bird that he actually, well, you know, he, he thought he harvested with his cap gun out in the, out in the blind. With him. So That's funny. I gave him first shot and then mom took the <laughs> That's funny. Good idea. Good idea. Laura, I want to hear more about this turkey soup that you made. I mean, how cool is that, that you 
you fed your um, at the re- your wedding reception wild turkey. How cool is that? I mean, are you tell us about this recipe and then tell us maybe what's some other favorite recipes you have? Yeah, sure. This is my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> Good. So, yeah. So for the wedding, so we, my husband and I both took two turkeys and then we had a friend and his brother. They both took two turkeys. So we had 120 people at the wedding. All we did was we, we ground the meat and then prepped it. So we cooked it and then we just gave it to the caterer and the caterer made chili out of it. So I don't know the exact recipe, but I do know that um, with like Kansas food laws, you can't just provide harvested meat to a caterer unless it's cooked. So there's like a little loophole there. So that worked out well. And it was a real point of pride for us to be able to feed all of our guests with clean, you know, um, free range meat from Kansas. But in general, now my, my go-to recipe is one from the cookbook, salt, fat, acid, heat. If you guys have heard of that, it's also a Netflix show. Um, and that cookbook is just really great. It's revolutionized all of my culinary skills, but there's a recipe in there for turkey breast and she has you brine it overnight with a, like a sugar, salt, lemon juice, peppercorn, cayenne pepper mix. And then you roast it and then you basically, it it basically like makes lunch meat so you can slice it. And it's just like this really moist, tender turkey. And so we make sandwiches with that. And that's been really nice. And then there's another recipe that I always use from Danielle Pruitt. And she has the blog Wild and Whole. And she's a hunter. And it is for turkey with a cashew garlic cream sauce and like an herb, um, a lemony bright herb salad. And so all the flavors together are just really phenomenal. And I'll tell you what, I don't like supermarket turkey anymore. Like I prefer wild. And I think I, and I've had a lot of people eat it and say, wow, this is really good. And they had no idea that I hunted it. So I think that's, that's a success for me. The recipes you're talking about, holy smokes. I mean, I'm literally drooling. That sounds absolutely (laughs) amazing. We may, uh, be begging you to share those recipes so we can put them on our Facebook site. Holy smokes, that sounds delicious. I can do that. Yeah, because I was tired. My husband would always just make like, oh, we're just going to roast, you know, roast it or kebabs or just put it in a cast iron and just be like plain meat. So I wanted to zhuzh it up a little bit. And turkey is known to be a little tougher, uh, your wild turkey. So it sounds like definitely in any wild game, it is, it's just a matter of the way you prepare it and you care for it. That makes it that more tender, gives it that, that natural flavoring that definitely is good. And sounds like you have definitely hit the uh, niche on that one. And again, just going back to that excitement of you fed your, the, uh, at the wedding, that that's super cool. It was fun. And we were going to, we were going to feed everyone morels as well. Cause we always morel hunt when we turkey hunt, but we ended up eating them all. So <laughs> I would too. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't share. I would not share it. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing they'll be asking you is where you got them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't want that. <laughs> in the woods. I got yes. them in the woods. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Julia, I'll definitely share those recipes so we can put them in the show notes. Great. Andrea, thank you for joining us. And as we start wrapping up, what, uh, is there anything we missed or additional information that you want to share with us from uh, the law perspective of it? Well, the biggest thing I think I would tell the public 
please, if you have any questions, call your local conservation officer. If you have any questions about laws um, or if any of the areas that you're going to be going to in that particular county or area, feel free to call us. We have our phone numbers are listed in the hunting regs. Feel free to call, text us, leave us a message because we're here to help you. I, I, I'll, <laughs> I, the number of people that say, well, I heard it from so-and-so from so-and-so at the diner said that you could do this. And it's like, oh, you just, <laughs> you just need to call us directly. We'll tell you the scoop. And the other thing I tell people to do is um, carry a hunting rag in your in your vehicle. A lot of times people have it on their phone now too, um, but put the local officer's phone number in there, but I'll also carry a hunting rig. Our, the state of Iowa has the hunting atlas online through our DNR website. It's a great tool to see. We have a walk-in access program too also that Shelly had touched on for Nebraska and Iowa has it too. So um, there's a lot more public access um, for Iowa because like a lot of the states here that most of it's privately owned. So, um, but yeah, please, like I said, give us a call if you ever have any questions. And thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, no questions ever a dumb question. So especially when it comes to hunting, just just ask you're better safe than to be sorry. Right. Uh, definitely spot on there. And there it is there. It's not something just that easily can jump in the field. There's a lot to know about it. And uh, that's that's what we're all out here to do is to answer those questions so that you can have a safe, successful hunt. All right, Shelly, what else? You know, did we miss anything? You know, I don't know that we did. Um, again, just like Andrew was saying, if anybody has any questions, welcome to always call any of us for that matter, because we're we biologists. We hide from the public when we're out and about, but we're happy to sit down and talk to anybody when they want to ask. Talk um, shop, right? You want to talk exactly, shop. Exactly. <laughs> Hunting Access Atlas is online. Um, we do have hard copies and you can call the Lincoln office. You can call any of the district offices too. We'll be happy to send those out as well as with the, the hunting regs and the, all of the requirements. We do have a, for turkeys in particular, we do actually have a turkey hunting guide. We've worked, my husband and I, since Matt is another biologist, um, we've worked the National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, the big meeting down in, in Nashville. Nashville. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You know, there's so much information to be had. And if you want to go into turkey equipment overload, that is <laughs> to go. It's, it's fabulous. Oh yeah, I bet so. I bet so. I, I've heard a lot about that um, great convention, and hopefully yes. they can start sparking it back up again here in a couple of years to be able to to do it. Yeah, but you know, and even with you know, there's there's so much to learn there. But then a lot on the local level too, because the chapters do a lot with youth mm-hmm. hunting, and even not with just the kids. I mean, if you want to learn how to turkey hunt and you've never done it find somebody from the turkey federation find somebody a friend that hunts you know and never be afraid to go out and ask and say teach me i think that's what what folks really want to do they want to be able to share their passion and of hunting of hunting squirrels of hunting turkey of hunting whatever they have you know and and be able to, to pass that on to somebody 
That's, that's spot on, Shelley, where we do, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there that could be your mentor and would love to be your mentor. And it's sometimes that just that ask is the hardest part. Um, don't be afraid to ask someone that you know is a turkey hunter and say, hey, you know, take me out or help me find someone to take me out or what do I need to know? Laura, you sounds like you're the gourmet chef of the group. What have we missed or any? Gosh, we've covered so much. I would say so. I'm also a birder um, and I like to botanize. So like identifying wildflowers and trees. I would just challenge all of your listeners who are going to go out on a turkey hunt to also learn the calls of at least two or three other songbirds and maybe learn to identify a couple of spring wildflowers. It'll really enhance your experience. It'll kind of round out your understanding of the the ecosystem, which is so important. So please try to do that. And if you need help, hit us up at Kansas Wildlife Federation because we know our birds. We don't know... We don't know all the the regulations around turkey hunting. We always carry our reg books with us and learn them the week before, (laughs) Um, but we do know our bird calls. That's a great uh, addition because you're sitting out there in the field, um, turkey hunting, and it is, spring is a beautiful time where things are sprouting up out of the ground, they're moving, they're singing, Um, many are warm days, and just that atmosphere around you to, um, you can be honestly be sitting in the blind, learning and observing, and uh, even nature journaling while you're out there and waiting for turkeys to come in, so Definitely. What a great challenge and addition to while you're out in the field. Thanks for sharing, Laura. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Well, again, uh, we've had a great conversation. And as I've said a couple of times through this episode that we could go on and on about turkey hunting. What a wealth of knowledge the three have been. Uh, We appreciate your time. And if you have questions, our Facebook is a great spot to send that. She Goes Outdoors box is up for grabs right now at Esco Outdoors. And it'll be fishing. We're very excited about you could purchase a fishing box for yourself or purchase a fishing box for as someone as a gift thank you for joining us and we will see you outdoors Mm